Money is like energy. It is valuable for what you can do with it, not for its own sake. Like energy, you may have been endowed with it, built it up, expended it, rekindled it, longed for it, or perhaps wasted it. Your money awaits your purpose. In this podcast, we will explore how to put your money to its best use, in support of your life goals and your life's purpose. What do you want your money to do for you and for others? How much of it is needed and how best to grow to your target? Join us as we explore the intersection of money and purpose and how to power your life financially. Welcome to our third installment of Your Money, Your Purpose. And with us today is Tom Conrad, the editor of Alt Energy Stocks. He has a doctorate in mathematics and is a CFA charter holder and longtime peer of mine in the green investing space. He provides independent research to JPS Global Investments on green stocks. He is also on the verge of launching a green equity income focused hedge fund with investment research partners. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Tom Conrad. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Jan. Great to be on. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to uh, get you on my podcast, and and, uh, hopefully this is one of of many visits, uh, future visits, is you wrote an interesting article recently that explored some of the myths around clean energy investing. And... uh, you know, myths always stand in the way of kind of achieving what's possible. So I, I thought um, I'd invite you and maybe you can debunk some of these myths that exist uh, in the field of green investing. Perhaps you can highlight some that uh, you think are sort of front and center for, for investors. Well, the first myth I always seem to run into when I'm talking to somebody about green investing is that they feel like that it may be too risky. Um, they, you know, okay, yes, uh, I'd love to invest um, in green energy, but that might be way too risky for my portfolio. Maybe I can only put a small slice of my money in there. And and that's not true. I mean, that myth grows out of the idea that clean energy technology is new technology. And while it's certainly newer than digging rocks out of the ground and burning them, uh, it's been around for decades now, and we have been, we have established solar, wind, hydropower, and a lot of energy efficiency technologies are well established, they're cost effective today, and because of that, there is this whole space of clean energy infrastructure um, that you can invest in. Infrastructure is one of the sectors of investment that is traditionally very conservative, um, produces long, reliable cash flows, and um, it's very suitable for almost any portfolio as a fairly large portion of that portfolio. Um, The other thing is, as we transition the world to off fossil fuels, every sector of the economy is going to have to be green. And so there are green investing opportunities in every sector of the economy. Um, You can look at real estate, real estate investment trusts that are leaders in retrofitting or building new net zero buildings. In transportation, you can look at 
obviously electric vehicles, new fuels, electrofuels or hydrogen. And then there are also technologies you might not think of that save enormous amount of carbon, such as something that's been really popular during the pandemic, teleconferencing. It's a lot more cost effective and saves a ton of energy not to be driving in an office, into the office every day. Sure. So th there's a lot of themes that are any any part of the economy can can have a, a green opportunity in it. You just have to look. Sure. No, that, that's that's a a good perspective to have. And perhaps I, I don't know if you you believe this, but perhaps it's people's love affair with Tesla and uh, you know thinking of Tesla as as a tech company and not a car company has sort of created this sort of excitement for, about investing in green tech or clean tech and at the same time mm -hmm. that you know by those who haven't done that is perceived as being very risky and, and maybe uh I, I guess it's good to yeah. know there's a lot more out there than you know sort of the yeah. obvious okay I, I i don't think if elon musk didn't exist there would be other high-flying tech companies that would draw people's attention i think i think tech is is in and of itself tech and innovation are in and of themselves exciting and I do think that exciting technologies are risky. It's just that I'm just saying that not all of clean tech is exciting and not all of clean tech is risky. Sure. No, that, yep, your, your point is well taken. Uh, Tom, what, what other myths are out there that you, you wanted to highlight? Well, another is the myth that comes from modern portfolio theory, the sort of standard in, framework that almost every money manager starts with, which is that you need to invest in the entire economy. And as a corollary, they want to, if, if you actually reject that and think you only want to invest in the green economy, some people don't take it all the way. And they think, well, I want to invest in the green economy, but I want to invest in all of the green economy. No, you don't need to do that. You can just rest, invest in the, say, lower risk portions of the green economy. You can look at, you know, just because, say, hydrogen is going to be big, I think that actually it will be big. It's going to be, it's necessary for um, solving a lot of the problems we have that the current levels of green technology aren't going to. So the current green technology, is there sufficient to decarbonize most of the economy but the, there's still some really hard to decarbonize parts after we've done all that hard work taking us from where we are now in the barely into the low double digits of green energy to you know 80 70 80 90 percent we can do that with current technology but things like hydrogen which haven't really been commercialized yet are going to be needed to get that last um 10 to 30 percent and so hydrogen probably will be big, but we don't have to invest in it now. There's still all the sort of more established technologies, which often have a better risk profile than developing technologies like hydrogen, where we, we know it's going to be big, but we don't know that the companies who are doing it now are going to be the ones who succeed. And so when you say, hey, I don't want to invest in fossil fuels, you should also think, hey, I don't want to invest in all parts of the green economy um, that might be too risky or may not um, meet my environmental values. I mean, uh, 
Another myth is resource intensive. There's a lot of resources that go, um, you know, there's dirty mining that's needed for a lot of green technologies. And, you know, that, that yes, that may be part of the green economy, but we don't have to invest in it. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. And, and I certainly come across that where, you know, people get, ex well, they either get excited or they get very concerned, depending on their perspective. But, you know, about investing in things like lithium and rare earth metals, because, yeah. you know, those are foundational to sort of the EV market and therefore should be invested in, I guess, is sort of the, the narrative. Um, and Right. Uh, yeah, if you believe the narrative, you're, it sometimes feels compelling to invest in every narrative that you find convincing. And, you know, there's, there's two ways to approach that. You can find ways to invest in that narrative that aren't as dirty. So if you want to invest in resources like lithium, rare earths, uh, cobalt and nickel that are also needed in lithium, you can, you can invest in the cycling of those things. Or you can just simply say, hey, you know, there's, there's places where I don't have to compromise my morals. I can put my focus there. I just, I, I don't have to be everywhere. Sure. No, that's that's a good, uh, good point. And sort of segueing into, you know, you mentioned you don't have to compromise your morals, and my my mind jumps jumps to uh, fossil fuel companies and, you know, whether whether there's an investment case there or perhaps it's beyond the pale for you know, people that just yeah. you know, plainly don't want to invest. Uh, you know, in, in such companies. But do you think there are fossil fuel companies that are sort of able to pivot and uh, and sort of reinvest in, in clean energy and, and be a big force for change there? Or do you think that is just not not viable, whether whether you invest with, with your values in mind or just, just sort of pragmatically? I think that some of the European fossil fuel companies, a few of them have demonstrated it's possible. There's a company uh, called Orsted, which used to be Dong Energy. Dong used to stand for Danish oil and gas, and they are pretty much the offshore wind leader. Um, they took their experience dealing with offshore oil and transitioned to use it to develop some of the Earth's first offshore wind farms. And now they're a big offshore wind, wind developer and they've divested their um, oiling, most of their oil and gas exposure. The, another one that's a little less far along the way is a company called Nesty, which was, is a fairly big oil refiner, but they're now a leader in refining biofuels instead of oil. So they just changed the feedstock and are a leader in developing that. Now, Going back to the earlier point, do we want to invest in it? I've been reluctant, even though I think Nestie's a leader in advanced biofuels, they still own a lot of oil refining. And so, you know, it goes back to the early point. Yeah, I don't really need to be in that. <laughs> but um, Danish oil and gas, now Orsted, they're, they're definitely a leader in offshore wind and uh, they're a way that's worth looking into. There's valuations questions. Whenever you've, you know, I always start with a green screen. These are companies I'm willing to invest in. After that, I go back to spending time on sort of more traditional investing metrics, buying things at good values the other way. Yeah. 
do risk. So the green screen in terms of do I want to invest in oil and gas, there's, there's little downside in that because the really hard part of investing is valuation. Um, you have to spend a lot of time becoming familiar with the company, understanding when it's a good value, understanding the dynamics of when to get in, when to get out. Um, and you can't do that with very many companies. And so just having this sort of easy to apply screen can be an advantage. It just means, oh, you know, I never have to look at Exxon. I never have to look at Facebook. I, you know, Facebook may not have a big fossil fuel imprint, but they have a horrible imprint on our society socially. So even though they show up in a lot of green mutual funds because they're low fossil fuel, yeah, I'm never going to look at Facebook because you know they're they're horrible socially, and there's just other places to invest. That's well, Tom, that, kind of on that point. Let me let me ask you from your perspective because you know I know you as somebody who who both is investing from the opportunity standpoint, but also from from a value standpoint. By saying you know you don't have to invest in everything, I think is a good point. You know, it allows you to focus and such. But at the same time, are you, by not investing, say, in lithium rare earth metals or fossil fuel companies or, or certain tech companies that, that may be beyond the pale, is there a trade-off in general, but perhaps also, you know, for your, your version of green investing in terms of um, investing for profit and investing in the best outcomes for the planet? I don't generally think so. I think that if everybody made the same types of decisions I did, then there would be too many people crowding into the very the few the sort of fewer stocks, fewer sectors sectors I like. But as as long as everyone doesn't make the exact same moral decisions, the whole the whole thing gets investment. And the, I just have to make sure that I have exposure to many different economic risk factors. So when you, when you build a portfolio that's the whole economy, maybe there are you know, five or six major risk factors that at different times will hurt your portfolio. And you, wanna have, you don't want any one risk factor to do, dominate the portfolio, as long as I don't focus all my investment on say wind infrastructure stocks or electric vehicles then electric vehicles or wind infrastructure if that sector has a big problem i'm still invested in clean water and so i still get the benefits of diversification i think of diversification not as number of stocks but as diversifying the risk factors of my portfolio. So if there's like some sector that's harder for me to invest in, I may overweight certain companies that um, still are still represented there to try to balance out those risk factors. But I think if you do that, no, there's, there's no need to do ex extra risk. Really, if you can get 10 really well-diversified companies that are have different risk factors totally different risk factors and behave differently in different economic conditions you're fully diversified you don't need to do that but you certainly don't need to have 500 or a thousand companies in your portfolio to reduce your risk 
as much as you need to from diversification. Yeah, and Tom, that's that's a point that's well taken. And you know, but but let me phrase it slightly differently. And you know, we know that risk and return go hand in hand. And um, but yeah, just kind of taking the return perspective. So if you're a, a, an early investor, say for retirement, and you have a decade or two to go or or more, and you have a high risk appetite, are you are you constraining yourself by having the kind of the focus on, you know, the kind of the overlap of values and, and thematic green investments? Um, it, are you are you kind of discounting some some areas that others might, you know, earn above market return in, um, or or is there just plainly enough to choose from? across the risk spectrum, you know, from yeah. from speculative to sort of more staid income type investing. Right. Well, I mean, I certainly can underperform um, certain sectors. I mean, there, there will be sectors that do remarkably well. You know, um, I, I see this as very similar to, um, I didn't invest in Amazon in, 2000 and didn't make, or actually really, I didn't invest in it 2001 or 2002 after the tech boom broke up. Um, and, you know, I didn't get those big gains, but most people didn't. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it, compared to a diversified portfolio. No, I'm not giving up any risk compared to a focused portfolio on some one thing that I, I personally am not interested in, or I personally don't have the skill set to invest in. I'm sure you will find things that outperform my performance. But uh, the research has shown that um, the risk-adjusted um, returns of growth stocks actually are lower than the risk-adjusted returns of income value stocks over the long term. And so just staying away from growth stocks, I mean, there's, you know, the, the, the big winners are going to be growth stocks, but growth stocks in general, generally actually underperform once you account for the risk. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's a, big, go ahead. Yeah, so I think it's a, a salient point and, and often misunderstood by investors. You know, that, like, for example, if you look at, you know, in our space, the green stock space, I mean, the elephant in the room is Tesla, right? So going back to, I don't know, whenever they went public, 2010, around there, something like that. I was looking at a chart um, prior to our call and, you know, the the average annual return of Tesla since then is 60% a year. So, you know, if you look at a, say, a mutual fund that is sort of known as the fund that invests in the picks and shovels and not directly mm -hmm. in all the shiny objects that are the clean tech companies, that's a PAX Global Environmental Markets Fund that has a compound return of, 12.44% going back to 2010, right? So, so much less and, and more in line with the market. But, you know, the conclusion to draw is not, oh, you know, it's better to invest in things like Tesla. No, with the perfect, the benefit of perfect hindsight, it, it would have been really good to invest in Tesla. But if you look at a, a fund, say a clean tech fund that does focus more on the tech names like the Wilder Hill Clean Energy ETF, it has Tesla in it, but it's, average return is only seven and a half percent over that whole time period. So, so 
I guess the point being is not every company is going to be the next Tesla. And one of them might be, um, if you're lucky enough to put all your money in that one, you will grossly outperform everybody else. But if you're diversifying amongst potential candidates for the next Tesla, you're not necessarily going to have spectacular performance. No, and actually you probably will have substandard performance. I mean, um, it, like solar, I think is a great example of that. If you look at like the solar ETF, uh, TAN, um, solar as a technology has been a remarkable um, winner over many, many years. But if you invested in solar around the time I started getting serious about um, investing in clean tech in 2007, 2008, you would still be down today. <laughs> um, meanwhile, the, the solar as a technology has, has, has been had enormous success, but the companies haven't. Um, so it, it's very hard to confuse. Uh, it's easy to confuse um, a technology success story with a company success story. And Tesla certainly was never certain. I think without the Obama um, uh, stimulus, uh, the ARRA, back in the last financial crisis, they put a lot of money into backing Tesla. And I don't think without that, Tesla, Tesla could have become the company it was today. And that was that was chance. <laughs> yeah. That couldn't have seen the company coming. And almost every other EV company that was started around the same time is worthless today. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And so, so to, you know, going on that theme of finding the next Tesla, you know, that if you, if you get it wrong, you basically have very poor return or you, you'll, you'll probably lose most of your capital. So to increase your chances of getting it right, you would have to buy a bunch of them. There are a bunch of prospects to be the next, next Tesla, which invariably are gonna be growth companies. And Neil, evidence suggests if you buy a bunch of them, you're actually going to outperform, uh, underperform the market. Yeah. So, so it's you know it's it looks easy, but it's quite difficult. <laughs> so no one uh, talks about all their old losers. People always talk about their uh, their winners, and uh, so you, it's easy to get the impression that the people who take this approach take the approach of trying to find the next Tesla are winners because they only talk about their wins. And you know, often they only tell themselves about it. They make excuses. It's very easy to fool yourself. It's not um, about your investing skill. And yeah. So all the <laughs> all the uh, comparisons to gambling are are uh, are valid. <laughs> you know, it's the yeah. same language you use because it's the same instinct we uh, we seek to appease. Yeah. Um well, uh kind of sh shifting gears um, and this is something that I haven't quite resolved for myself yet, but you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're just buying stocks, right? So we're, we're buying shares in a, in say a clean energy company that is doing good things in the world from some other investor. Um, so where is the impact in any of that? Are we, are we really making a difference or is it just to sort of appease our, our values and or pursue, you know, return that we're interested in as far as like the theme goes. Right. Like, are we, are we actually having any sort of impact? 
Yeah. Well, there's there's several ways that there is an impact. And so if companies need to raise funds, even if they are not doing a secondary offering and new, selling new shares, I mean, if they sell new shares to the market, obviously, if you bought it and raised the stock price, they get more money for without giving up as much of the company as, as do you because you are one of the existing owners. Um, but say if they don't sell shares, suppose they go to a bank, the bank will actually look at the stock price and the stock valuation when considering how much of a credit risk they are. And so they'll be able to get a better deal from their bank. Um, if also CEOs and leadership and company leadership are all often rewarded based on changes in the stock price. When you buy the stock, you make a marginal difference in the stock price. And if you buy the stock of companies that are doing what you believe is right, well, you're rewarding those um, company managers for doing the right thing. Um, sure. Finally, I think something that's less thought about is the effect of the stocks we own on ourselves. If I owned ExxonMobil and I was talking to my political representative, I might want to push that political representative to move us away from fossil fuels. But if I owned ExxonMobil, I'd be of two minds. I'd like, well, that's going to hurt my portfolio. So if you want to think about the political change we want, I think it's important to be of one mind, not not to um, have your portfolio influence you in the wrong way. Um, so yeah. it flows both ways. I, I get your point on that, although I take a slightly different view because I think if, if you're investing in, now maybe there's some, some companies are just beyond the pale, you shouldn't invest in them, they're you know, pillaging the earth or what have you. But you know, if you're, if you're not a passive shareholder, if you're an active shareholder in that, you know, you take, you vote your proxies, you, you support shareholder initiatives, you know, I think you can, you can make a positive difference in a company that has perhaps some issues with it. Right. So, um, so I, I think it matters what you own, but also sort of how you own it. Right. So if you, you know, if you look at a, a, a green mutual fund that um, maybe has a, big overlap in, in the holdings compared to say a, a Vanguard index fund. But well, the difference could be that, that, you know, that green mutual fund is, is voting its shares and, you know, forcing company XYZ to come up with a, you know, uh, carbon neutral policy for 2040 or, you know, what have you. So, so I think, uh, I think it matters a little bit how you approach your ownership and, and, uh, and also sometimes car, um, you know, companies do what's in their best short-term interest, but actually not what's in their best long-term interest. And if you're a stock investor, you care about you know, long-term. So for example, if I, we push Ford and General Motors to make smaller, more fuel-efficient cars or now EVs, you know, maybe, well, the writing's on the wall, so that, that story's changed now. But you know, maybe they, in the past, they would have you know, kicked and screamed a little bit because in the short term, it's, it comes at the expense of profits, but in the long term, they you know, could be a, a market leader in a new industry. So, so sometimes there's no conflict by, as a shareholder, in my opinion, by sort of being in conflict with some of the management decisions. 
I think that companies, I, I think it's very, very, very hard to influence companies through shareholder activism. I mean, I love what engine number one did recently by getting two people on the board of Exxon um, as an activist shareholder by persuading the big um, mutual funds to vote with them. But I do think that most shareholder resolutions are basically ignored by large companies. Um, yes, I, I'm not arguing that it's, if you are an investor in um, a company, you, will, you do wanna vote at your shares, but usually you don't have a chance to vote on the company's green policy at all. So I, it, this, this, I guess this comes back to my theme is you don't have to invest in everything. You don't have to pursue every tactic that moves the world in the right direction. I personally find that tactic of being an activist shareholder hard. Um, and um, I think the, the, the effort reward, the amount we can move things is much smaller than just taking our money away from bad actors and hoping they go bankrupt. Yeah, and no, your, your point is well taken. You know, and, and management does seem to have a, uh, maybe an outsized influence on the direction of company versus you know, a minority shareholder. But uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, I think maybe a little bit the difference between in theory and in practice, right? What you can accomplish as, a, as an investor. Yeah. Uh, but well, um, it depends on the company. It depends on which company too. Sure. I mean, suppose like, you know, my early example of Facebook, small shareholders have no effect. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but there are others where, you know, and there was the example with Exxon, which I, I, to me, I think that's just so memorable because it's the exception that proves the rule that shareholders can't do much of anything. There yeah. was this example when they, when one group actually did and well, I, you know, it's like one or two of the, the, the instances we can point to where activist shareholding work with a big company. Yeah. Well, I, for the environment. Know. A lot of it has to do with the plumbing, right? With the with the financial industry and yeah, you know, the SEC and yeah, it hasn't always been on the side of uh, right. activist shareholders, to be sure. Um, but, but I mean, uh, I think go ahead, I'm, I'm going to turn this interview back back around on you, and you may want oh, to no. cut it. But <laughs> no, Jan, as a investment advisor, um, do you vote your clients' shares or um, advise them to vote? on how to vote in the in all the elections to move things in the right direction? No, I do not. Um, and it's it's something I wish I could answer differently. And and it's sort of to your point, right? So I was like, yeah. uh, I should- It's too hard. I'm better, <laughs> I'm better off <laughs> investing in companies that don't need to be uh, nudged as much. And, and the reason for it is, you know, it's quite difficult. I think, um, you know, the, the very big proxy advisors, um, you know, it, it would just be cost prohibitive for a small boutique money manager to to hire them to sort of advise on proxy voting and, you know, voting proxies in the way that you see fit and your clients see fit. Um, but even, you know, the, the kind of the next tier proxy advisor, um, I recently looked at one, I, I the name is escaping me, but it was something like $38 per action. And that, that was the cost, right? So Wow. Per per sh per holding per client, so I, I did the math sort of the back of a napkin, and 
it would cost me so, somewhere around six hundred thousand dollars to, you know, wow. effectively vote all my proxies and, and do all my activism with you know former clients with the shares I own, right? Which is completely cost prohibitive, right? So, so I think there's uh, maybe there's a you know there's still a a real opportunity for disruption in that market to, to make it a, a much cheaper yeah. and, and more efficient to, to vote proxies. But, but yeah, I mean, point well taken, right? So yeah, for, for now, <laughs> I, I, all I have to say is thank you for proving my point. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, with that, I think we're, uh, we're coming up on sort of the end of our podcast. Um, if I have any takeaways is that you can uh, invest with your values. Uh, you can invest uh, opportunistically in, in the green economy and, and, do quite well and you could do it in a way that that fits you it doesn't have to be uh the same for everybody and it doesn't have to be a situation where you invest in everything that's out there so um tom do you have any any parting words for our audience yeah no i i agree i i I agree it's i again you know like people i coach who are improving their homes the, the hard part is realizing that you can do this, but once you realize you can do it, you can invest with your values. It's so empowering. Um, I, I think there's, I think there's something wonderful about knowing you can invest with your values and not having a moral conflict about your investments and knowing that you're not really giving up anything to do. it. I don't have a better last word, Tom. So, so with that, uh, thank you very much for, coming on my podcast and uh, all the best to you as uh, as you close out the year and, and launch your, your hedge fund. Uh, thank you very much. Great, great to be on. Okay. Bye-bye.